Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is my co-host. We will be talking today about Google's event this week where they announced a number of new devices as well as some updates to their services. Uh, we'll then do our question of the week segment in which Aaron will talk us through some of the ways in which Apple has been able to move its A-series chips forward. That was a major theme at the iPhone launch event a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Aaron's been doing some research about the background there and how Apple's been able to achieve some of the gains it's made there, both in terms of its own gains over time and also its advantages over some competitors. Uh, and then after that, we'll talk a little bit about our first experiences with the new iPhones, both uh, of us having received new iPhones this past few days, and talk about some of our first impressions. So we'll kick off with a discussion of the uh, Google event this week. I think it's kind of fascinating to see Google moving to what feels like a very similar cadence to Apple with its events. Obviously, you've got the summer developer events that all three of the major platform companies have, you know, Apple, Google, and Microsoft, where they introduce new versions of their software, um, especially in the case of Google and Apple now fairly consistently, new versions of the mobile software. And then fall events where you see those uh, new versions of the mobile software on a new device as well. And with Apple, obviously, it's always been the iPhone. Google has not had quite the same predictable schedule, but this year they also did a fall event just a couple of weeks after Apple's and announced some new phones, the Nexus uh, phones for this year. There are two of them this time around. There's the uh, 6P and the 5X. Um, the 5X kind of resurrecting the Nexus 5 from a couple of years ago with some upgrades. And the 6B, 6P being the flagship device with slightly better specs and a better camera and so on and, and being made by Huawei this time around. It's the first time they've been a partner. Um, but Google also kind of mirrored Apple in that it also announced a television device and it was an upgrade to an existing device in their case the Chromecast, uh, and they also released a new version of the Chromecast specifically for audio called Chromecast Audio, which you would plug into speakers uh, for music and other audio content around the home rather than plugging into your TV. And they announced sort of updates to Google Photos and a few other Google services and, and of course, uh, made official the launch of the latest version of Android, um, which uh, is, is rolling out now to Nexus devices and will be rolling out to some other Android devices over the next few months. Um, Aaron, did you kind of read up on the uh, the event? Did you have any kind of initial thoughts about all of this? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, the first most striking thing was that Apple's doing two Nexus phones this time instead of one, that they actually are tiering them, you know, in their product place, in their, like, market placement. Um, that seems to be more, it seems to be Google paying more, much more attention to the market for these phones than they've done in the past. I, I mean, the Nexus device has always sort of felt like it's had two purposes. One is for the the tried and true Android diehards um, that want the pure Android experience and they care about Android more than anything else. Because in the past, the Nexus phone has always had some sort of feature sacrifice, you know, that it, that was required in order to get a pure Android experience. Um, that so I guess and then the second purpose has been a reference device. It seems like Google's always produced Nexus devices just to kind of show manufacturers, look, this is how we'd like it to be if you, you know, if you're going to be using Android. And I think this is interesting because it seems more consumer focused having two devices. So. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that was one of the strange sort of dichotomies. I mean, I was only able to watch part of the event because I was getting on a plane when it was happening. Um, but one of the funny things about it was Sundar Pichai kind of talked about it as a developer device, which is kind of how these Nexus devices have evolved over the last few years is that they've been devices for developers to try their apps on and, and get early access to new versions of Android as well. Um, and then Dave Burke, who's kind of the product manager for Android, got up and talked about it as if it was a consumer device, you know, as if something that we're pitching to consumers, talked up all the great new features and how wonderful the camera was. And, you know, you'd be able to use these great new marshmallow features on it and, and all this kind of thing. And so it's a strange dichotomy. And there's always been one of the problems with the Nexus line for Google. The original Nexus line, um, the, the Nexus One rather, the first device in this program, was intended as a consumer device, but it was a huge flop. Um, and it was interesting. I, I wrote a piece last week for Tech Pinions about you know why Google even bothers making Nexus phones anymore. And uh, in, in doing my research for that piece, I came across this quote from Google, um, which was uh, just a few months after the launch of the Nexus One, in which they basically said, we're withdrawing it from online sales. We figured out consumers really don't want to buy devices online. They want to walk into retail stores. And you know we haven't been able to provide that experience. And so we're essentially stopping online sales. Um, and yet they've launched every subsequent Nexus device in almost exactly the same way, um, you know, with a lack of retail sales, you know, total lack of U.S. carrier support. Um, they've, they've kind of gone back and forth on this. They've been able to get one or two carriers to back some of the devices such that they've had retail sales, but that's then taken away the benefit of having an unlocked device that works on any carrier. Um, but yeah, from a consumer perspective, they tend to they continue to be marginal. And uh, I have a contact over at Kantar, which measures, you know, what devices people are buying and why. And she she told me that uh, Nexus devices are 0.8% of the base of Android devices they track in some of the major markets around the world. So less than 1% of Android devices sold are these Nexus phones, even though they tend to be cheaper. Um, they tend to be the only ones that are running the latest version of Android. And so this reinforces to me the combination of A, people really don't get the value proposition, and B, unless they can buy it through a carrier in many markets and um, see it in person before they buy it, uh, it's not that an attractive a proposition to them. It'll be interesting to see how that changes as carrier subsidies have been dying off. You know, I, it, like I wonder if Google will have more success selling these phones directly because more and more consumers are going to be looking at, you know, these sort of phone plans and <clears throat> and trying to decide what to do with the phone that they're going to be purchasing. The price is a lot less hidden now, and that has mm. always that's always been one of the advantages of the Nexus devices is they've been cheaper, yep. for and 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 have a great value proposition for what you get relative to the price. And I wonder if right. more, if if the way the carrier subsidies have been dying off will maybe bring more people. But I, I, I do think the, the retail thing is probably the biggest hurdle. Most people that buy a phone want to actually try it before they purchase it. Yeah, that and then I think just, just to your point, the fact that you've had to buy these for full price, whereas you know traditionally carriers have subsidized phones or at least made it possible to pay for them over time. And of course, with the new installment plans, you're still not paying full price up front in most cases. And what's interesting is that Google does offer installment plans for the Google Fi uh, mobile service that it runs now in the US. So if you buy a Nexus 6 through Google Fi, you can pay for that in installments. But separate from that program, as far as I'm aware, there's no way to pay for Nexus devices in installments unless you're part of the Google Fi service. And so yeah, it's called another credit thing credit. that I wrote about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, that's it's a big disadvantage. And I'm curious to see if that changes at some point. Obviously, Apple's now um, doing installment plans for iPhones. Samsung's just started a similar program. Um, 
one of the challenges is, is with Samsung too is the retail side of things and, and how are you actually going to get a hold of these devices. You can of course go and test these devices in, in carrier retail stores, but if you're buying them directly from Samsung, you know, how does that work? How do they support that? How do they support the ongoing relationship that goes with that? And of course with Google, a company that's entirely without a retail presence directly, um, you know, it's even more of a challenge. So I find that interesting. Um, one of the other things I find interesting is that the the difference, the divergence, if you like, between the strategies for the TV space between Google and Apple. Um, you know, Apple obviously bringing out a much more powerful piece of hardware that's a dedicated piece of hardware that's also independent um, that plugs into your television directly and provides all your content options while Google continues to go down this very different road of a device that's dependent essentially on a smartphone or a tablet which then casts things to it over Wi-Fi. Um, they, they sped up the device, the Wi-Fi is now uh, faster, there's some other clever technology for caching and that kind of thing. So the performance of that model should be better, but ultimately the concept is still very much the same. Um, having said that, of course, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, this isn't Google's only TV device. They also have Android TV and, and the Nexus Player, which is an Android TV device that they make themselves, and then third-party devices based on Android TV. So they're hedging their bets a little bit in that sense, but interesting to see Chromecast continue to do very well in sales, I think in large part because it's about a third the cost of most of the other boxes out there, but it is very different to see these two, very interesting to see these two very different sort of philosophical approaches to the TV experience from these two companies. You know, I, and this is not speaking from an Apple fanboy perspective, I really don't think using your phone to manage your television is, is a better experience. I think you need a separate device with a separate remote, and I, I'm excited about that aspect of the Apple TV. For I mean, you know, for example, I don't want to have to give my kids a tablet or my phone if they want to be doing something on the television. And, and so I think the I think the Chromecast approach is not going to last, um, especially as the App Store and the Apple TV blows up as we expect it to. Um, I, you know, I just think a, a dedicated device is is the answer when it comes to the TV space. That said, I do think the Chromecast audio is an awesome idea. Um, in fact, I think I think Sonos should be a little bit nervous. Yeah, I do wonder though if there's a kind of a parallel here. You know, Chromecast versus Apple TV, and to some extent Amazon Fire TV, and then you know Chromecast Audio versus Sonos. Kind of, to what extent are you going to get the same experience? You know, clearly the Chromecast as a device has been attractive because of price. Perhaps some people are attracted to the model itself as well, but I suspect a lot of people are buying it in spite of the fact that it's a slightly cumbersome model. And I wonder if Chromecast Audio will attract some of the same people that are mostly driven by price rather than by, say, quality and, and performance. And I, I'm very curious to see how well it performs, especially if you have multiple devices plugged into different devices throughout, you know, different speakers or stereos throughout your home, right. and whether it, you know, manages the experience in the same way Sonos does. Um, obviously, it also assumes that you have speakers in multiple rooms in your home right. um, if you want to use it in that way. And obviously, Sonos is an integrated approach. Um, whereas you know this is you know entirely separate, it's kind of plug and play to some extent, but that may mean it doesn't perform quite as well. Right. I've always thought that Sonos left has left a price umbrella because of the way they yeah. are premium service. I mean product. I mm -hmm. mean, and I think that has a lot to do with uh, how quickly Bluetooth speakers have grown. Everybody has a phone, and, and you're you're mm -hmm. and playing a you know where this is different from the Apple TV, is that you know people don't care so much about having music on a dedicated device other than their phone or tablet or whatever. 
I mean, most people, right. their music is on their phone, and that is how it works. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I, you know, I think I, I do think Sonos risks more in this space because, A, Bluetooth speakers have sort of taken off, and I can't imagine that they haven't had some effect on Sonos's market, especially because mm-hmm. a lot of them are really inexpensive now. Right. Um, but then you add to this, you know, you could get a, a great pair of, of shelf speakers and plug in this cheap Chromecast audio device, and you could do that in multiple rooms. I, mm-hmm. I, I just think, it, depending on the quality of the audio that it puts out, I could even picture audiophiles preferring that approach to the Sonos approach, because mm. these are the people who are much pickier about their speakers. And right, so right, yeah. I mean, the Sonos speakers, for all their you know decent quality, they're all fairly small right. um, and not that powerful. I mean, I don't own a system. I've been tempted by the concept, but to your point, you know, put off by the price and then also by the fact that ultimately what I'm going to get for the price is a sort of mid-range speaker, and I'm not an audiophile. You know, I don't insist on having this incredible quality and paying thousands of dollars for it, but, you know, it feels like a funny mix of overpriced and underpowered to some extent. Right. Um, and that's what's always put me off. So, yeah, I've used AirPlay. I have I have uh, an old Apple Airport Extreme uh, Express, rather, in my office. It's plugged into a stereo. Um, we use AirPlay on our Apple TV that's attached to the speakers in our, in our TV room. Um, so we have various ways of playing audio throughout the home through AirPlay. But, you know, in every case, I'm using other speakers that I already owned, and, and those are probably better than the ones I would get with a Sonos system. So I can see how Chromecast Audio kind of serves that same need, um, but potentially quite a bit cheaper. Yeah. I think one of the, you know, I, you, you said, you know, you, you thought the days of the, the Chromecast approach for video were numbered, and I think I tend to agree with that. I think as we start wanting to do more with these boxes that are connected to our TVs, and obviously Apple's foray into gaming and apps in general, is a part of that trend, but you know, as we start wanting to do more, I think this model fits less and less well. And there's also this awkward sort of: first, you have to discover the content, then you have to discover whether it will work with Chromecast. Right. Whereas on Apple TV, whatever you find is by definition going to work. Um, you know, there's universal search now within the Chromecast app, um, but not all of those things will necessarily support Chromecast, especially if you're on a, an iPhone rather than an Android device. And so, there are various places where it breaks down. But you know, the, the kids scenario that you mentioned earlier too is another obvious one. You know, I may always have my phone with me. My kids don't have phones. They share an iPad, but, you know, is that always going to be available? Is it going to be charged? Is it, you know, can we find it when they want to watch television? You know, do you really want to have to depend on something like that? And so Chromecast feels still very much like a sort of a secondary input device, whereas I feel like Apple TV's goal, especially once Apple launches its own TV service, is going to be the only input you need. Yeah. And I feel like the Chromecast approach can never take the place of that because it's always going to be dependent on other devices. Yeah, and and I think, you know, it's funny because the Apple TV prior to this September always had this, it was always notorious for being Apple's hobby. <clears throat> That's how I see Chromecast for Google right now. I think it's just keep, I think Google's just keeping their foot in the door. I, I, yeah. I don't think this is a serious effort toward television, even though, I mean, you'd need more than one hand to count all the different times Google has tried to go after TV. Right. Um, but uh, it, I won't be surprised if they end up following Apple's lead this time next year. And mm. it will be a good thing, generally. you'll ha- There will be more competition, you know, in the same way that Android has pushed iPhone and iPhone has pushed Android. I think you'll see the same thing happen on the television side. It, there are just too many ways that it's similar. Um, 
to what was going on before with smartphones. That I just think right. I, I think Apple's setting the trend here, and mm-hmm. Android's going to res- or Google's going to respond with some really cool stuff. So yeah, and there's also this whole interesting thing of you know Google competing with its own OEMs around Android too. You know right. Nexus phones, um, you know, and I kind of tweeted about this during the event, but all the evidence suggests that cheaper Android phones damage the sales of more expensive Android phones. They don't have any kind of impact on iPhone sales at all, um, you know, which obviously are currently growing very strongly. And so, you know, whether that's, you know, OnePlus or Xiaomi or other, you know, Android vendors or whether it's Google with its own Nexus program, you know, the biggest impact often tends to be on the existing established Android vendors, some of which are really struggling at the moment, you know, Samsung, LG, HTC especially, Sony to some extent. Um, you know, these are the guys that are really suffering because of this stuff. And you wonder to what extent Nexus really benefits the OEMs versus, you know, highlighting the fact that they don't have the latest version of Android, that they're more expensive because these companies actually insist on making a margin on this stuff um, and have to sell it through, you know, third-party channels and so on. So, you know, it's it's an interesting strategy from Google's perspective. And I wonder if to some extent it does more harm than good and if they'd be better off just creating kind of a a line of devices that was exclusively for developers and then leaving the rest to other vendors rather than you know, kind of trying to compete in the consumer market themselves. Yeah, it's like it's like Google is just constantly trying to prod these guys to move phones in a particular direction and it has right. to do so really delicately. Yeah, and to some extent, there's an analogy there to what Microsoft does with the Surface. Right. Um, you know, their, their excuse for coming out with the Surface in the first place, which is the first time they really competed directly with their OEMs, was, you know, they're not getting it done, basically. You know, we're trying to show them how to do it. And yet, you know, Surface has become a thing in its own right, even as OEMs have kind of stepped up um, to, to kind of meet that challenge better. And I feel like Nexus is kind of the same way, where... Um, you know, the Nexus devices have stuck around perhaps long past when the theory for producing them has stopped making sense, at least as consumer devices. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our second topic, which is our question of the week. And uh, you've got that for us this week. And, and the topic here is Apple's A-series chips. And at the uh, iPhone event a couple of weeks ago, as it has become customary over the last several years, you know, Phil Schiller put up several charts showing the improvement in performance of these A-series chips that go into iPhones, iPads, and, uh, and Apple TVs. Um, and iPods, obviously, as well, um, you know, just how quick those gains have been over the last few years. And so what Aaron spent some time doing this week is uh, investigating kind of how Apple's been able to achieve this. So I guess the question that we're trying to answer this week is, you know, what are the market forces that have allowed Apple to make such big gains in its A-series chips, uh, and especially in relation to the competition? And, and what are the sort of business lessons from all of this? Um, so why don't you start out by walking us through kind of one of these terms that gets thrown around but may not be um, especially meaningful or familiar to people that don't study the chip market, which is fabulous. You know, what does it mean? What does fabulous mean? How does fabulous manufacturing factor into all of this? Sure. Well, semiconductor manufacturing is really expensive. The equipment that, that's required to produce a chip um, is, is, is ridiculous. I have, so I have a brother who works in the semiconductor industry. In fact, he kind of helped guide me to better understand this topic. And uh, I, I mean, you know, you're dealing with tolerances that are measured at, at nano levels. And uh, there can be all kinds of hiccups in the process. A, a layer, for example, that's put onto a silicon wafer can be too thick by nanometers and mess up the yield you get for your semiconductor manufacturing. 
and it and and that layer could be too thick because the temperature was off by a tenth of a degree. I mean, there are all these things that make this really hard, where the where the tolerances are really small, and so as you can imagine, the equipment for doing this is is insanely expensive, and. But there are a lot of people that want to produce things that require semiconductors and they don't want to invest the capital to build their own factories. And so these are fabulous manufacturers, which is a bit of an oxymoron because it means they're not fabricating their own chips, but we still call them manufacturers. And it's because they manufacture other things. Um, but, uh, but the semiconductors, they don't manufacture themselves. And Apple is a fabulous manufacturer. Um, the, the reason that matters as a market force when it comes to the performance of the A-series chips is uh, has a, actually an interesting history. Um, there, are, there are kind of two main categories of companies that produce these chips, uh, either for themselves or for other people. The, the companies that produce chips for themselves are called IDMs or integrated devi- device manufacturers. Intel is the biggest example of an IDM. Samsung is something of a hybrid IDM, or what the or and then they overlap with this other category we we would call a foundry. And and foundries are essentially outsourced production for chip manufacturing. So uh, the reason this is an interesting history is because in the past IDMs have always been able to produce better, faster chips. Um, and it has to do with the focus that being an IDM provides you. Intel sort of can design chips and 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 run the factories themselves, and so everything is tied together. And so when they're working on a die shrink, for example, where they want to produce transistors at a smaller scale, um, they can do that in conjunction with their with uh, their chip design process. And so historically, IBM, or sorry, not IBM, Intel has been able to do better than fabulous manufacturers and foundries um, because of this tight integration between design and and manufacturing. Um, That has changed quite a bit um, in the last 10 or so years. And it's had to do with the fact that a lot of these foundries have been able to focus on on the ARM architecture uh, this is uh, the, so the company ARM licenses technology for basic chip design. Apple is one of the licensees, and our, and and what's happened is big foundries like TSMC have been able to realize efficiency gains as they've been able to focus on ARM chips, and so they've been able to pull off the same kind of or close to the same kind of die shrinks that Intel has been able to do. And so the reason this matters to Apple is because as foundries have been able to focus on, on particular platforms and realize efficiency gains in their manufacturing process, Apple has been able to benefit from the focus side of things in the same way that Intel does, but also has been able to benefit from market competition. And in fact, I think that's evidenced really well in the report that just came out this week about how Apple is using both Samsung and TSMC chips in the new iPhones. Um, right. The, 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 even though they're actually slightly different sizes, Samsung is producing them at 14 nanometer um, uh, transistor size, whereas TSMC is producing it at 16 nanometer transistor size. In fact, the chips are actually physically different sizes. Um, and I can only imagine the manufacturing headache that creates for Apple, but obviously it's worth it to them. 
And, and the performances are reportedly the same it is. for the two chips, even though they are different sizes. It is. It's, a, it's, it's the same performance. And, and when you've got multiple foundries competing for your business, they're going to be working harder and coming up with better innovations on the manufacturing side of things. And that has, that has uh, been to Apple's benefit. And that's true even though they've been using Samsung since the beginning. I mean, Samsung has produced the vast majority of Apple's A-series chips. But Samsung has always had TSMC, Global Foundries, and other foundry companies sort of nipping at their heels and mm -hmm. has pushed Samsung to be more and more efficient on the foundry side. Now, S Samsung is a hybrid. It's a foundry and an IDM because they use their own chips and their own devices. But, um, right. but they've had to compete for Apple's business, which is a huge source of revenue for them. And, uh, and so Apple's been able to benefit on both sides of this, both on the focus side and on the... Uh, and on the competition, so the market competition side, because they're a fabulous manufacturer. In fact, historically, if you look, it's been kind of amazing, but the A-series chip in a very short amount of time went from a 90 nanometer process down to, with Samsung, a 14 nanometer process. And you can see how that would produce really dramatic gains over a very short period. Right, and in some ways it feels like Apple is kind of like the kid with divorced parents here. Kind of you play <laughs> one off against the other and then yeah. get them each to promise you something different. Or perhaps if you don't get what you want from one of them, then you go to the other one and ask for it. So to some extent benefiting from that same dynamic. Oh, it's really um, true. So and TSMC in this analogy is the dad who's never gotten joint custody until just now. <laughs> nice. Um, so back in 2008, Apple acquired a company called PI Semi. Um, how does that factor into all of this? So this is the second advantage that I think that Apple has had in the A-series chips, and it's in their talent acquisition. Historically, Apple's really good at talent acquisition, even if they're very mysterious about it at the same time. Um, they will swing big to get the right kind of people working for them. And the PA Semi uh, acquisition back in 2008 was an example of them like taking a swing for a home run. And, it re and I think this is how this has happened. Now, there's some speculation on my part here, but uh, I don't think it's unfounded speculation at all. Back in 2008, when Apple bought PA Semi, uh, PA Semi was working on a series of mostly desktop-oriented chips that were using a different architecture than, than the Intel chips that Apple was using. And so it was a confusing acquisition uh, it, it, as far as the public you know, justification for it was concerned. It was confusing because PA Semi was really good at making chips that Apple didn't use and probably would never use. <clears throat> right. It's now much more apparent seven years later that this was essentially a, a talent acquisition. In fact, they bought the company for a pretty, pretty good deal. I think they're, PA Semi's most recent funding round before the Apple acquisition was valuing the company at about $100 million. And Apple bought it for something like $238 million. And, and so that's not a very high premium over its previous funding round, which says that Apple's purchase probably had more to do with the talent rather than the actual product lines that PSMI had been producing. I don't think there was a ton of market upside that way. But PSMI as a team of about 150 engineers had, had done some pretty remarkable, had, had created some pretty remarkable innovations in their space. And, uh, you know, occasionally there were like, there were individuals that bubbled to the surface. One was a guy named Jim Keller, who was actually in charge of the platform uh, design for the A-series chips for Apple up until about 2012. He left to go work for AMD that year, 
And that was a, he, he was talented enough and had a strong enough reputation that this actually hit the news when it happened. Um, it wasn't a prominent news item, but it seemed like, you know, in a, re- in a really obscure area of technology for most people, right, like system on chip design, um, this hire, this this loss to Apple was was newsworthy. That same year, they hired a guy away from AMD named John Bruno, whose hiring was also noteworthy because of his talent. I, I think part of the reason Apple's been able to produce um, such impressive gains is they've really built, and I think we we know this just by the evidence. They've really built an amazing design team for the A series chips. Uh, and the proof is in the pudding because when we see how the what what the gains are like year after year, I mean, <clears throat> the A the A nine was a bigger jump over the A eight than the A eight was over the A seven, both on the CPU side and on the GPU side, and and that that reflects a, an accelerating performance improvement, which this many years in is pretty remarkable. And in fact, I wonder how long it's going to last. But I think it's mostly driven by the fact that Apple has amazing people. To, doing the chip design for them. Right, yeah, that makes sense. So another big factor in all of this is Apple's um, choice of using ARM rather than Intel-based architectures. And you did mention ARM briefly just now. It's one of those fascinating companies that is fundamentally an intellectual property company. So it doesn't manufacture anything. It simply designs these chips and then licenses that intellectual property to people who then commission chips based on that architecture and um, and often go to yet a third party, as in, in the case of Apple, to actually get them made. So how does how does Apple's selection of ARM um, help them with all of this? How does how is that factored into their success with these A-series chips? Yeah, and I think this comparison is especially interesting when you compare our A-series chips to Intel chips. Um, by every indication, the A9X chip that's going to be shipping in the iPad Pro is going to benchmark at least as fast, if not faster, than the Intel chips that are in the current MacBooks. That's a really, really big deal. Mm-hmm. The idea that the idea that um, that a tablet would be uh, that an Apple tablet would be outperforming an Apple laptop will be the first time that I think that's probably ever happened. Right. And uh, in fact, it definitely is the first time that's happened. And in fact, I think it, it harkens back to the comments you had made in a previous episode when we talked about Tim Cook saying that they see the iPad Pro is the clearest expression of the future of computing. Um, Apple's putting a lot into making the A-series chips powerful, not just battery efficient. So and, and battery, like power efficiency is what the ARM series is so, is so fantastic at. Um, that ARM chips are risk chips, which means uh, they use a reduced instruction set to accomplish what they do. That means you need fewer transistors to get the same output. Um, and the result of fewer transistors means less battery drain or power drain. And when you're relying on battery powered devices, power efficiency is a really big deal, obviously. Intel came at its, its x86 chip design with devices that were plugged in. And in fact, we know that they've been kind of caught flat-footed as far as, uh, uh, as far as the mobile space is concerned, and Apple doesn't really produce any chips that are really widely used in mobile devices or battery-powered devices, with the exception of laptops. Um, and the idea that the ARM series is now catching up to Intel on the laptop side is something that's really, really kind of shocking, although based on history we should have known it was coming 
Um, this ARM platform, I think, has longer legs as far as the future is concerned. Um, I'm not sure that Apple's platform really, or sorry, Intel's chip platform is going to be able to see both battery and performance gains at the same rate ARM chips have been able to. And so the fact that Apple chose the ARM platform to do what it was doing, I think, is the is another huge advantage and it's app and, and really that all started back with the iPod because the iPod used ARM based chips and I think Apple saw a, a market for mobile devices being the primary computing device for a lot of people as in terms of just you know day-to-day -day usage and that's and, and so the iPod really started Apple down the ARM road and uh, it's paid off in a big way right um, so John Gruber this week sort of had a couple of posts in which he referred to the fact that um, these A-series chips are outperforming Qualcomm's chips, even where in some cases the Qualcomm chips have more cores and various other things, and you know on paper you'd expect them to be uh, outperforming Apple's chips. So how is Apple being able to kind of maintain that lead in performance over some of these competing chips when you know Qualcomm has massive scale because almost everybody else out there is building on Qualcomm chips? or at least has been from the major manufacturer perspective. Um, what's that all about? How is that happening? Yeah, I think this has, th this is analogous to the benefit Intel has by being an IDM um, in the sense that they control the whole widget top to bottom, um, you know, and as far as designing and manufacturing the chips. Apple isn't manufacturing its chips, obviously, but it is integrating them in its own products, and that's not the case for Qualcomm. And Nvidia and the others that make Android chips, like as like uh, uh, CPUs and GPUs. The reason this matters so much is because, um, I mean, for example, the Motion Series coprocessor, the the M the M chip that Apple has baked in. Um, the, uh, there's a lot on the system level design about photography that Apple was able to bake into the A-series chips that makes the cameras better at processing digital images. Um, there's, there's a level of focus that Apple gets by making its own products that, uh, that Qualcomm and the others can't enjoy. Um, Gruber, when he talked about it this week, pointed out how JavaScript performance is much better on Apple devices because Apple has focused on single core performance and making sure that single core performance is really high and because that's the way JavaScript works is on single core instead of multi-core. And, and these are all design decisions that Apple gets to make because they, they, they're making the phones themselves. That the, right, they're the only customer. Yeah, they're their own customer, and so they can design these chips with a lot more customization, a lot more focus. It, they can be much more strategic about it, whereas uh, HTC, LG, Samsung's the only one that's different here. Um, uh, Sony's the same. They, they have to essentially take chips off the shelf. And that means when they design their products, they just have to sort of take what, what these other, um, what these chip manufacturers are providing them. And and so, it shouldn't actually be a surprise that uh, that Apple can see all sorts of efficiency gains in different spaces um, with the chips. Now that said, um, the benefit for Android devices, right, is that there is competition, although there's not a ton of it right now. But there is competition for the kinds of chips that are produced that go into Android devices. And, and so I think that's why Apple hasn't just blown all these other guys out of the water with their, right, with their focus okay. benefit or advantage here. Yeah. Mm. 
So say I'm a startup, I want to make smartphones, I decide to do fabulous manufacturing and, and you know, have the foundries compete for my business. I decide to hire some really smart people, either through an acquisition or just going out and hiring and cherry picking them from competitors. I pick ARM as my architecture of choice and then I take this sort of integrated approach where I make my own chips or have somebody make them for me because I'm the only customer. I get the benefits that we've just been talking about. Can I do what Apple's done or is there anything else that makes Apple kind of uniquely qualified or positioned to do this kind of thing and to enjoy the advantages it does? Well, my question is, do you have billions of dollars that I don't know about, Yen? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, I'm being silly, but that's the answer. A Apple has right. had, I mean, because of the success of the iPod, Apple built up a war chest, a, a huge amount of cash just sitting around. And with that cash, Apple's been able to do all the things we talked about and pay for them up front. And, and I think that's been what has made Apple so uniquely positioned to pull all this off. I mean, to buy PA Semi, I mean, that was a rounding error as far as the, the, the cost of that acquisition goes um, to, to Apple's bottom line. And, and yet they were bringing in 150 of the most talented design, uh, chip design engineers around. And uh, it, you know, a couple of years ago, there were a ton of rumors floating around of Apple producing, of building its own factory, its own fab, in upstate New York. And in partnership with Global Foundries, it looked like that this was going to happen. You know, there's there's not much in the news anymore about that, or what's or how that's going, um, or if it's even going at all. Um, but that that investment would have cost Apple six billion dollars. That's not the kind of money that HTC or LG or Sony can drop. Um, just w on a whim, right? I mean, that would be that would be a, a relatively major investment for them. But for Apple, six billion, you know, they've got over two hundred billion in the bank, and, and so I, I think that the the capital Apple has brought to the A series chips has enabled them to buy whatever they want. And to the, Apple's credit, they haven't they haven't spent willy nilly. I mean, there's they haven't done it. it what's curious about Apple and the A series chips is they haven't done a ton of notable acquisitions. Um, and so I think a lot of the capital expenditures have had to do with um, with hiring um, in the sense that Apple's been able to pay competitively or so it would seem from the outside uh, to bring in the right people. Um, I think they've been able to leverage their position with their manufacturers. And, uh, and so it, it, you need capital and you need market power like Apple has. Uh, to mm -hmm. be able to pull off what they've been able to pull off um, with the A-series chips. And the truth is you could say this about all of Apple's manufacturing. I mean, right. the, way they, the, the way they produce aluminum case devices, for example, and the way they process aluminum, a startup can't just do that all of a sudden. Like the milling machines that Apple uses are really, really expensive and of, of, often custom designed. And so to produce something like the iPhone 6 that has the same precision and attention to detail, the way the glass is produced, the chips are just another another extension of how Apple's had a, a big checkbook to be able to do really amazing things in manufacturing. Right, and yeah, one of the th ways it's used that money that it has is not necessarily to splurge on stuff, but oftentimes to buy up the components well in advance that it needs to produce some of these devices in a way that both ensures the supply that they need, but also makes it very difficult for competitors sometimes to yeah. secure the components they need because they essentially buy up the world supply for, you know, whether it's sapphire or, um, you know, a certain kind of glass or, or other components or whatever. And so they've used that cash very strategically to, to gain competitive advantage in these ways and also to ensure the supply chain. Right. 
Well, thank you for talking us through all that. Um, I certainly learned some things. This is not my area of expertise, so I'm grateful that you uh, took some time to learn about it for us. And, and we thank your brother as well for providing some uh, some insights. What's your brother's name? Uh, Tim. Did we say? Yeah. All right, Tim. Well, thank you, Tim. He's as much well. smarter than me, so it was a good thing I could call him. <laughs> there we go. All right. Well, let's move on to um, another topic uh, related, of course, in that you know the A series chips and, and when everything we've been talking about. Um, the latest ones are in the latest iPhones, which both of us have begun using over the last few days. Um, I did a post on Monday evening about my uh, first few days of experience with the new iPhone 6S Plus, um, which I had been using since Friday morning. Um, I took a bunch of pictures and videos and things like that and posted a bunch of examples. And so we'll include a link in the show notes uh, at podcast.beyonddevices. But uh, curious, Aaron, to hear some of your first impressions. I know you've been using it for a little while as well. Um, and you upgraded, I believe, from the 5S. Right. So kind of a bigger jump for you perhaps than it was for me coming from last year's 6 Plus. Yeah. No, and I, and I guess one or two of the things that I noticed, the Touch ID speed that everybody talked about in all the reviews is the real deal. Um, I think nothing is better proof of that than the fact that my wife is now willing to use Touch ID. <laughs> so <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was slow enough and frustrating enough for her on the 5S that she turned it off, hmm. um, despite my suggestion that she keep it turned on. Um, right. There are two things that made her willing to use Touch ID on the 6S. Uh, one is how much faster it is and more accurate. I mean, I'm guessing the other one is Apple Pay. Yeah, it is, and she wants to use Apple Pay, and you have to have it enabled for Apple Pay, and so right. that's why she's doing it. But, um, but I mean, I, I, you know, and every reviewer said this, but the experience of it is really cool. You can't click mm -hmm. the home button to look at the lock screen anymore. At least right. not with a, yeah. not with one. Do you use a different yeah, finger? Yeah, you have to or use a different or, finger yeah. or, or use the yeah. the lock button because uh -huh. I I'm constantly just habitually checking my lock screen and and then launching you know into the springboard. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I've had the same experience. I wrote about that in my review too, um, and, and speed overall. I mean, the Touch ID is faster, but you know the A series chips we were just talking about. The speed of the device, you know, the speed of opening apps, of browsing, you know, web pages, of you know, interacting with apps in different ways. Everything seems to have sped up, even from last year's phone, fairly significantly. Um, and one of the things I wrote about in my review is I feel like I, I'm the most significant source of latency in my interactions with the phone, and that text entry and that kind of stuff feels very clunky and slow, given how fast everything. Else Else is and so I'm, I'm kind of drawn to use Siri and voice dictation more um, just to try to speed up that part of things but uh, yeah have you been using 3d touch much I mean I mentioned that in my review as well that you know I'd, I'd used it a fair amount I thought it was going to be really important but um, because it hasn't sort of extended to many third-party applications yet and I, I do tend to use sort of Outlook rather than the mail application and other calendar apps rather than default calendar app I, I haven't used it quite as much as perhaps I might yeah, the um, the 3D touch. I, it's funny. I, I find myself still constantly trying apps, even if I am pretty sure that they don't support it. Because I mean, Instagram seems to be the only third-party app that launched with support for 3D touch. Well, I mean, when the iPhone success launched. But mm -hmm. it's funny. The part of the reason I do it is the 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 Taptic engine is yeah. has like a visceral appeal to it that's hard to describe but when you press down mm -hmm. on the screen the, the 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 feedback you get especially when something is is 3d touch enabled it's just really cool and and, and you know it's sort of like a delight in the details kind of idea 
and right. uh, and so I've really enjoyed it. I'm really excited about more developers taking advantage of 3D Touch. I, you know, there's some skepticism floating around. A lot of the reviewers though say they think it's going to be a game changer, and I I'm on the game changer side of things. Yeah, I feel like once more third-party developers support it, and they didn't have long, in fairness, to, to prepare right. the feature unless they were part of you know Apple's sort of preview program for demos and stuff. Uh, but yeah, once more third-party developers support it, I think it could be a big deal for sure. I'm really surprised um, Facebook wasn't in that group. It, well, it was. That was a funny thing. So in the demos at the September event, Facebook um, was one of the apps that worked that way. Um, and yet they've just updated their app this week, and, and that update didn't show up. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that Facebook hasn't hasn't shown up. Perhaps that's what you meant, that right. they haven't shown up yet despite yeah, the Yeah, they haven't yeah. shown up with support yet. Yeah, no, it was funny. It, well, the other thing that was funny was that Facebook Messenger was one of the sort of headline new apps for Apple Watch, and yet that also got an update this week and was also missing Apple Watch functionality. So two separate demos that were at Apple's September event involving Facebook, the apps, despite being updated since then, had not added that functionality that was demoed so i guess they're still um, bug polishing if i was apple i'd be really annoyed by that and yeah because, yeah it just seemed odd yeah these sorts of things should be out the door along with the phone right right in an ideal world absolutely they would be um but oh yeah the, the, the haptic feedback that you mentioned just now i mean what's funny is haptics have been around for years so you know android phones have had them for years and i always one of the first things i do when i review a new android phone is turn off the haptic feedback um, usually it's on the keyboard and, and sometimes it's a few other places and I'm just at this AT&T event at the moment and they've given every attendee a Samsung Galaxy Edge Plus um, which is full, nobody seems to be able to get the full name of it right and I just got it <laughs> wrong too um, Galaxy S6 Edge Plus I guess um, but uh, the point is that it includes haptic feedback on the keyboard and various other buttons that you push and I hate that and it really bugs me and I always turn it off and yet somehow Apple's managed you know when I first saw the references to haptics in relation to the Apple Watch, I thought, oh no, you know, not another place where I'm going to have to turn this stuff off. And yet the implementation of it is so different and so much better and to your point, you know, actually pleasurable to use um, because it, it's meaningful feedback. It's not right. just random, like every time I tap the screen, the screen taps me back. That's not actually helpful at all. Right. It has a specific meaning um, and it gives me feedback as to exactly how I'm interacting with things, or rather in some cases even that I can't interact with certain screen elements in the way that I'm trying to. Um, and it makes it useful. And so it's, yeah, it's totally changed kind of what haptics mean to me, um, you know, compared to my past experience where it was always something of a negative thing. Well, you know, it's an example of a solution. Oh, these other devices, it's an example of a solution in search of a problem. You, you yes. don't need the feedback when you're using a keyboard. You have audio feedback and visual feedback. You don't need the, right. the physical feedback at the same time. Whereas in Apple's case, mm -hmm. they they knew that 3D Touch was going to be a cool thing, but they had to figure out a way to give the user feedback that th about the depth of their press. And mm -hmm. haptics makes a ton of sense there. That's what the Taptic Engine does is it helps you understand. You sort of like feel like you're reaching a new level of pressing um, mm -hmm. in terms of pressure or depth, and that's that's a problem needing a solution rather than a solution in search of a problem. Right. Yeah, no, it adds a new level of interactivity to stuff. And, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to see what happens with that. Um, any other thoughts on the iPhones before we move on from that? No, I'm happy with mine. I mean, I, I you know, it yeah. was a big upgrade for me because I was, I was on the 5S before. Um, I'm curious how much I'm going to enjoy live photos. I turned it on as default. And then I mm -hmm. find myself today taking pictures of a couple things that I don't really care about the live part for. And I'm like, uh, do I fiddle right. with this to turn it off? So 
that's still finding a place for me. I'm not sure. I suspect with my kids, I'll always have the feature on. Yeah, yeah, and that's going to be the challenge, I think, to remember to turn it back on again. But yeah, uh, I, yeah I, I've enjoyed it, but it, there's definitely a learning curve in terms of you know what it's useful for and and kind of how you have to take them and so on. So I think I'm still figuring that out. Yeah. Um, the day that we're recording this is is Wednesday, September 30th, which is the day when anybody who signed up for Apple Music on the first day um, it became available um, is going to get billed for the service unless they remembered to cancel or um, or just chose to cancel, I guess. Um, what's interesting here is that I chose not to cancel. I've been using it quite a bit and therefore plan to keep using it. And I wrote a piece about how I'm using it that went live on the Beyond Devices blog today. Um, Aaron, I think you were saying earlier that you've actually canceled your subscription. So um, I've written about the reasons why I'm still using it, although I did express some skepticism that, that the same reasons wouldn't apply to everybody else, but clearly uh, you've had a different experience. I'm curious to hear why. It's so it has a lot to do with the fact. Well, there okay. There are a couple things involved here. Um, one is that I, I was really, and this seems unrelated, but I was really annoyed when Apple changed the iCloud storage tier pricing this last time around because mm -hmm. I am because of our large photo library because we're using photos in the cloud. Um, because of our large photo library, we are just above the 200 gigabyte level. And, mm. the, and, and so we had been on the 500 gigabyte, the half terabyte level. And then when Apple redid it, they just bumped everything up. They bumped our, our sort of range up to a full terabyte at the same price, which I'm grateful for. But I, but I have 700 gigs of space on my iCloud drive that I don't need. And right. so... I don't know. I mean, the idea of paying so that's ten bucks a month, and then paying another mm. ten bucks a month for Apple Music was annoying to me, and so it's right. partly just it, it's funny because it's partly just because I'm angry about what happened with that. If if the price for <laughs> five hundred gigs had dropped to five bucks, and they kept that level, paying mm -hmm. fifteen bucks to Apple a month feels different to me than paying twenty enough. Right. That the the other thing for me is. It, um, and this has a lot to do with the seasonality of, of what I do professionally. Um, mm -hmm. when, when school's in session, I'm teaching a lot. I'm at my desk a lot less often, and I'm just listening to music less. And, right. I, you know, I've got a big library that I enjoy just fine, mm -hmm. and I can always fall back to Spotify when I want to listen to music that's new. Right. And so I just found the value for me dropped when my, when my semester kicked in. And so mm. that was the other reason that uh, I, that I stopped using it. Although I will say I'm, I, I definitely am leaving the door open. I, I didn't have any like major dissatisfactions with the service mm -hmm. that mean I would never use it again. Um, right. So that door is still open, but right now it's just it's a function of those two things. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, again, I've written about my reasons for, for liking it and it took me a while to start finding the recommendations useful. And I, I feel like it took some training on my part. Maybe the recommendations also got better anyway, because some changes in the algorithms and whatnot, but I've discovered quite a few new artists and new albums and things that I've been listening to quite actively. So probably took the first six to eight weeks to get there, but I, I feel like I got there, but it's been interesting just seeing other people post on Twitter and also reply to things that I've said about Apple Music. There's been a few themes and people not using it, you know, people who tried it and aren't using it anymore. One of them is going back to Spotify um, in some cases because the discovery features are better. Um, this new Discover Weekly thing that they've launched in the last little while um, seems to be something that's really drawing people in. 
which is interesting because obviously Apple Music majors on discovery. Um, another thing is, you know, people having created lots and lots of Spotify playlists and not wanting to have to recreate those. And it seemed to be simple matter for Apple to introduce some kind of import tool for those playlists. I think Beats already had one, or there was an unofficial one that allowed you to import playlists into Beats from Spotify. But it seems like that would help people over the hump. Um, one of my sisters-in-law specifically said that's one reason she hadn't switched. And, and these are people who pay for Spotify, incidentally. So it's not that the features in Spotify are necessarily better. It's just they don't want to have to make that investment in playlists all over again. Um, another category of people are people who um, use Sonos systems and Spotify and Beats um, support Sonos and um, Apple Music doesn't yet for whatever reason and, and that's something that you know, seems an obvious overlap between people who would have bought Sonos systems and people who would use Apple Music and yet um, that integration isn't there yet and that's the reason why some people are cancelling. Um, and then the third one is just going back to non-consumption and I guess you're in that bucket too. But you know, people who tried it and thought this is interesting but it's not worth it to, to pay $10, $15 a month for this um, and so I'm just going to go back to whatever I was doing before. And you know that's interesting because that's the target customer base that Apple was going for was people who aren't necessarily paying for subscription music yet. And for a lot of the people who tried it, they've clearly decided it isn't worth it to them. And I think there's an interesting sort of broader thing there, which goes back into the other thing you were talking about with iCloud storage, which is you know between the iPhone upgrade program, iCloud storage, Apple Music, Apple Care. Um, and you know potentially an Apple TV service, you know maybe quite a few people who will be in the position to spend a fairly significant amount on a monthly basis with Apple. Um, and will they want to do that? You know, will they want to spend that additional money every month with Apple for these services and you know the devices that they're using and so on? And and will that over time breed the same sort of resentment that? the monthly cable bill um, or utility bills um, you know, generate. Apple's always had these phenomenal customer satisfaction ratings, but I think that's in part because we splurge occasionally on an Apple product and then most of the time we just get to enjoy the benefit of it. But when forced to quantify kind of our usage and enjoyment of these products on a monthly basis, you know, for some of us I think that'll be fine, but for others I wonder if it will change the relationship they have with Apple and spending money with Apple. Yeah, those are all fantastic insights. They all resonate with me. I, I, I would add I think I think strategically Apple made a mistake by not going after the cutting edge users with Apple Music. Um, they really should have brought over more of the trendsetters when it comes to that, because the people who are on the fence about a about a paid music service are going to be asking the friends who actually pay for one. And if there aren't enough of those people saying that Apple Music is better than Spotify, then uh, then Apple's going to be losing a lot of customers that way. Yeah, and I worry that they're going to face the same challenge again with an eventual TV service, that they're going to be trying to get people to come over there much more from existing pay TV services. And if the features aren't notably better, then um, they may struggle with that. And obviously we haven't seen that yet. It's not even official yet. It's it's merely being reported at this point. But I worry that you know they're going to have to set the bar pretty high to get people to convert, especially given some of the um, issues in terms of what's going to happen to your broadband price and things like that. And just people's general kind of apathy when it comes to this kind of thing so i'm interested to see how that plays out a few months from now as well yeah i think i think if there's a if there's a way to summarize the mistakes apple's made with apple music i think it's just taken too much for granted and that's mm. uncharacteristic of apple but when you stop to consider that the apple music team is new to apple right the people running right. apple music are not aren't they didn't get sort of raised through the apple farm system so to speak Mm -hmm. um, it, it, you can see why Apple Music would have made that mistake when, you know, Apple doesn't typically make those mistakes in other areas. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Okay, well, um, we'll wrap up with our, our last weekly feature, which is our weekly pick, and it's my turn to do that this week, and I'll be quick with this. But uh, one of the uh, apps that I downloaded and installed on my iPhone a few months back um, and used for a while and then kind of eventually stopped using popped back up on my radar this week um, because of a response to the review that I did of the new iPhone. Um, one of the things I said in my review of 3D Touch was it would be great if more developers would allow users to customize the quick actions for their app. Um, Instagram, for example, you know, um, a new post is an obvious thing to have, but some of the other options that Instagram picked for quick actions don't make a ton of sense to me. Um, and somebody pointed out that this Launch Center Pro app that I used on my iPhone previously has uh, now a new version which does have customizable quick actions, which seems like a great use of uh, 3D Touch. And so I've been playing around with that. And, you know, one of the quick actions that I added was um, dim my screen to zero. So, you know, if you ever, if you're the kind of person who uses your screen uh, late at night in bed or early in the morning, doesn't wake up, you want to wake up a spouse, being able to quickly turn the screen to zero brightness is a nice little thing to have. And there are a ton of other actions, both for built-in apps and for third-party apps that Launch Center Pro has. So I think it's a $5 download um, from the App Store. So uh, recommend checking that out, if nothing else, then just to see how useful, customizable, quick actions using 3D Touch can be, something that I hope other developers pick up on as well. So with that, uh, we'll wrap up for this episode. Thank you for being with us again. Um, as usual, we'll direct you to the website at podcast.beyonddevices uh, for rele uh, relevant links to blog posts and other things that we've mentioned today. Um, as usual, please uh, give us feedback or, or comments on the website or through Twitter, um, where we are, Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller, respectively, um, if you have any feedback for us or any questions that you'd like us to tackle on future episodes. But uh, thanks again for being with us, and we'll talk to you again next week.